0: I've attended church my entire adult life, and I've never heard a sermon on Ezekiel. I imagine very few of you have either, unless maybe it was the first half of chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. As neglected as the book is in the modern world, it was very carefully attended to in the ancient world. It's one of the most commonly quoted books in antiquity. Only Isaiah, the Psalms, and Deuteronomy are quoted more often in ancient Judaism and early Christianity. And the reason is simple. It was very important to the writers of the Old Testament, and it was very important to the writers of the New Testament. But it's very inaccessible. It's esoteric if not mystical at times it's obscure it skips from topic to topic seemingly without rhyme or reason there are rhymes and reasons but they're hard to uh, discern at times it's horribly pessimistic and it does not shy away from offending us the prophet ezekiel in fact uses more obscenities than any other writer in the book in the entire hebrew bible so my task this evening is to help us approach the book and hopefully to appreciate it a little bit. My first goal is simple, to give you some facts to help you understand something about why it was written and why it is, how it's meant to be read. My second goal is to help us understand a little bit of something about that first vision that I read to you just a few moments ago. In particular, I want to point out why it's essential that the book begins this way. So, let's start with some facts. The prophet Ezekiel lived about 400 years after King David. When the book opens, we're nearing the end of a very long period of ill fortune for the nation. You might recall that the kingdom of David and Solomon was divided into two states after Solomon's death, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel, the northern kingdom, was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC, leaving Judah in the south. Judah lived alone in the land around Jerusalem for more than a century, and then undertook a very ill-advised war against the um, empire of Babylon, which they lost in 597 BC. Following that war, the Babylonians took most of the educated and the skilled people out of Jerusalem and resettled them in towns in Babylon, the book of Kings describes it this way. He, that is Nebuchadnezzar, carried off the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He cut them in pieces. He cut in pieces the vessels of gold from the temple of the Lord, which Solomon of Israel had made. All this is what the Lord foretold. He carried away all of Jerusalem, that is, all the officials, all the warriors. 10,000 captives, all the artisans, all the smiths. No one remained in the land except the poorest people. Ezekiel was a priest in Jerusalem at the time of the war. He was carried away, and he was resettled in Babylon. A few years later, four or five, when he was 30 years old, God began to appear to him. Now, before we can understand his first visions, we need to understand something of the theology he grew up with. What the defeat to Babylon and the sacking of Jerusalem and the plundering of the temple meant to him and to his fellow deportees. You see, God lived with his people. In the wilderness years, when the tabernacle was constructed, God's visible presence... Depicted as a pillar of smoke in the day and a pillar of fire by night, entered that tabernacle and lived in it in the midst of the people. When Solomon finally built a temple in Jerusalem, God's visible presence entered that building and took up residence there. In Hebrew, that special presence of God, the visible presence of God, is called his kavod. It's normally translated in English, his glory, but we use that word very differently. It's not an abstract quality in Hebrew. It's not something people give to him in the sense of giving him glory. It's his actual manifest presence. It is God himself. From the time of Moses until the time of Ezekiel, the kavod only appeared on Mount Sinai and at his dwellings in the tabernacle, and in the temple. Because God dwelled and was present with his people, living in the temple, living in Jerusalem, the people of Judah believed that the temple and the city were unconquerable. After all, any invader who entered the city would be confronted by the living God of Israel. The Old Testament includes several stories of invading armies being driven away from the city by God. The book of Psalms includes hymns on this theme, praising God for protecting the city. As a result, the whole land was viewed as God's special domain on earth, where pagans and foreign gods were not welcome. Long before the time of Ezekiel, and before he was king, David, when he was a fugitive, being driven from place to place by King Saul, made this complaint because he had to leave the land. He said, They've driven me out. I cannot have a share in the Lord's possession. I have been told, go worship other gods. Do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the Lord's presence. For David, being outside of the land is being outside of God's presence. It's being cut off from his protection. Now, this doesn't mean that ancient Israelites had no sense of God's sovereignty over the whole earth or no sense of his omnipresence. They certainly had these things. But God's protection of his people, it was widely believed, operated inside Israel's land. Because that's where the kavod was. Other lands were the domains of other gods, as David says, and they were not under the special care of the God of Israel. Now imagine with me for a moment that you were raised with this belief that you were taught from childhood that God lived in Jerusalem, that He protected His people who lived there and inside of His land. And moreover, imagine that you're taught that all other lands are spiritually desolate places, far from God's protection, quite possibly under the power of hostile deities. Now imagine the crisis of faith that you would face when the Babylonians, worshippers of a foreign god, Marduk, not only entered the land, but captured the city of God, plundered the house he inhabited, and took you away to live in Babylon? The questions that would raise, most importantly, was God too weak to protect us? Or did he abandon us? If he was too weak to protect us, is he strong enough to deliver us? Or maybe we should adopt some other God, one more able to take care of us. If he abandoned us, is it because we're being punished? Or is it perhaps that the covenant has been broken? If the covenant's broken, maybe we're not his people anymore. Let's hope we're just being punished. But if we're being punished, how do we gain God's forgiveness? Because we can't offer sacrifices at the temple anymore. Furthermore, if we can't gain forgiveness, how do we ever go home? Everything you believed, everything you were taught about your God and your identity as a member of his people is suddenly in doubt. If you were unfortunate enough to be with Ezekiel and sent away to live in Babylon, you would believe that you now lived in Marduk's land, far from your people and your God And your land. So, with those questions and problems in mind, we can now come to Ezekiel. Ezekiel and the other deported Judahites have been in Babylon for four, maybe five years. Ezekiel, being a priest, is unable to practice his profession in Babylon. Perhaps that's why he finds himself sitting beside a river on the day that God first appears to him. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth of the month, as I was among the exiles by the river Kavar, the heavens opened and I saw visions of God. As I looked, the storm wind came out of the north, a great cloud with brightness around it, fire flashing continually, And in the middle of the fire, something like gleaming, and we don't know what this word means. Your English Bibles supply different words. Something gleaming. The same divine cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness and inhabited the temple of Jerusalem has appeared suddenly and done something extraordinary. It swallowed up Ezekiel. And let him see what the cloud has been obscuring all these centuries. In the middle were the four living creatures. This was their appearance. They had human form. Each had four faces. Each had four wings. Their legs were straight. The soles of their feet, like the soles of a calf's foot, they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides were human hands. And the four had faces, and their wings, thusly, their wings touched each other, each moving straight, without turning as they moved. As for the appearance of their faces, the four had the face of a human, the face of a lion on the right, the face of an ox on the left, the face of an eagle, such were their faces. Their wings were spread out. Each had two wings, which touched the wings of another. Two covered up their bodies. Each moved straight. Where the spirit went, they went, without turning as they went. In the middle of the living creatures was something like burning coals of fire, torches moving to and fro in the middle of the creatures. The fire was bright. Lightning issued from the fire. The creatures darted to and fro like flashes of lightning, too. The first thing Ezekiel sees when he's pulled into this cloud are the celestial beings these hybrid creatures that are part animal, part human, and winged. As he watches, he learns that they're each tethered to a wheel, and they support a platform above their heads. They are the divine throne bearers that later in the book he will identify as cherubim, not fat little babies that we see in pictures from the Renaissance. Of course, these are cherubim. Fascinating and strange as the creatures are, the most remarkable thing he sees is what sits on the platform. As his eyes travel upward, here's what Ezekiel sees. Over the heads of the creatures was a dome, shining like crystal spread out over their heads. Under the dome, their wings were stretched out straight, one to another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. When they moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of mighty waters, like the thunder of the Almighty, like the sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stopped, they let their wings down. And there came a voice from above the dome above their heads when they stopped. And above the dome over their heads was a throne, in appearance like sapphire, seated above of the likeness of the throne was something like a human form. Upward from what appeared to be his loins was something like gleaming amber, something that looked like fire enclosed him. Downward from what looked like his loins was something that looked like fire. There was splendor all around him, like the bow in a cloud on a rainy day. Such is the appearance of the splendor all around. And then he tells us what he's seeing... It's the appearance of the likeness of the kavod of the Lord. Ezekiel is only the second person to see God and survive. The first was Moses, whom God spoke to -to face-to-face regularly. He is also the only person in the Old Testament to describe the kavod. Moses never tells us what he saw. As he learns, God travels the earth on his mighty throne, carried by his celestial beings, enshrouded in clouds and lightning. It's the descriptions of the creatures and the wheels and the lights and the sounds and God himself that distract us as modern readers. This is nothing like our images of God or his angels. Christian art tends to depict angels as benign, robed, winged, indistinguishable from humans if not for the halos and the feathers. God is also domesticated in our contemporary art. He's a kindly old man, or he's an unforgiving judge. Ezekiel's description is nothing like these. The creatures who bear God's throne, having multiple heads and animal legs and many wings, are very, very foreign to us. But they're not foreign to ancient Near Eastern peoples. Such hybrid throne-bearing creatures are actually rather commonplace in ancient Mesopotamia. The image of God as basically humanoid, but having fire from the waist down and surrounded by a nimbus of multi-hued light is another commonplace of ancient religious art. Here, the God of Israel appears looking like an ancient person would expect God to appear. After all, how is Ezekiel to recognize him if he doesn't look like God? It's important to note however how many times Ezekiel says seemed like or was like or had the appearance of clearly whatever he saw was indescribable and what we've written what he's written here is just an approximation of it more important than the portrait he paints of God's kavod is the fact that God is here. The God of Israel, as far as anyone knows, should be in Jerusalem. And he has suddenly appeared in Babylon. The significance of that event for the beginning of this book is hard to describe. God has not abandoned the exiles. He is present with them, even in Babylon. God is not powerless. God is not conquered. Even in the stronghold of Marduk, he goes where he wishes and he does what he wishes. And what he wishes to do in this moment is to take an unemployed priest and turn him into a prophet. When I saw it, says Ezekiel, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of someone speaking and it said, mortal, Stand on your feet. I will speak with you. And when he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and stood me up on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me, and he said, Mortal, I am sending you to the people of Israel, the nation of rebels who've rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have transgressed against me to this day. Their descendants are impudent and stubborn. I am sending you to them. And you will say, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear it or refuse to hear it, for they are a rebellious house. They will know that there's been a prophet among them, and you, O mortal, do not fear them. Don't be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns surround you and you live among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words. Don't be dismayed at their looks. They're a rebellious house. You will speak my words to them, whether they hear it or refuse to hear it, for they are rebellious. But you, mortal, hear what I say to you. Don't be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth. Eat what I give you. I looked, and a hand was stretched out and ended a scroll, and he spread it before me, and it was written front and back, and it was written with lamentation, moaning, and woe. Against his will, Ezekiel becomes God's prophet. We know this from his response. God warns him not to rebel. His task is to consume and then speak lamentation, moaning, and woe to his people, to recount their rebellions, and to predict the punishments to come on them and Jerusalem— because as he will learn the war they have lost and the deportation they have experienced is just the beginning of their woe ezekiel's tenure of a prophet as a prophet will be a sad one told to prophesy god will then prevent him from speaking forcing him to act out his prophecies he will then become entertainment to his people, a sideshow. They won't take him seriously. When his tongue is eventually freed, he is, and he's allowed to speak, almost everything he has to say to them is entirely negative. Much of it's offensive as well. His own people will hate him. They will turn instead to witches for their prophecies, witches who will tell them soothing lies. But not everything in the book of Ezekiel is negative, Inside the, uh, Along with the bulletin, when you entered, you were given a small slip of paper. On one side are some pictures of those ancient Near Eastern gods and hybrid beings that are similar, not exactly the same, but similar to the ones that Ezekiel sees in his inaugural vision. On the other side is a very, very spare outline of the book's structure. What it shows you is that the book is built around three visions— chapters 1 through 3, sorry, uh, apologies, Um, one on each end of the book, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 40 to 48, and one in the middle in chapters 8 through 11. All three of these visions feature God's kavod, his, his presence. In between these visions are a host of prophecies on many different topics, most of them announcing judgment against the people of some kind but there's three passages two oracles and one other vision that speak about the coming of god's spirit in the future the first is inside of the second vision in chapter 11 The second is in chapter 36, verses 16 to 38, and the third is the vision of the valley, or the vision of the dry bones. If you choose to read Ezekiel for yourself, along with this sermon series, you will find that you can actually read the text, these texts that I've identified, these six, one from another directly, almost like a miniature book inside the book. If you do that what you will see is the deportees wrestling with the very questions we've just raised earlier about God and his relationship to them. You will also see that there's a progression. One passage leads logically to another. Each one answers certain questions that the preceding raised. Each raises new questions that the next will answer. So much for my introduction to Ezekiel. A question remains, though. What are we, as 21st century Protestants in the Western world, supposed to do with these texts? I want to make two suggestions to you, and I hope you will keep them in mind as this series moves along. First, don't forget we're at the very beginning of the book. It's just beginning to unfold its stories and prophecies and themes and arguments. Before we rush to find an application, we need to let the book unfold. We don't yet know where it's leading. We don't yet know what the writers want from the readers. Second, and having said that, I'm going to give away part of Ezekiel's message to come. In Ezekiel... God never asks the people to do anything. Many scholars have noted that the book is devoid of declarations of action or of ethics. The message is essentially this. Sit still. Keep your faith. Wait for God. We sometimes forget when we read the Bible that we are whole people. We are not just people who act. We are people who feel, and we are people who think. The biblical writers are as concerned with what you think and what you feel as they are with what you do. They care about transforming whole persons. No writer more so than Ezekiel. Ezekiel is relentlessly opposed to action. What he does instead is challenge the reader's view of God and view of God's people and of God's plans for his people. He will tear down and then rebuild many of the reader's beliefs. He will taunt and scold and mock and offend just to hold our attention and to provoke the feelings in us that he wants to provoke All this demolition and negative rhetoric just makes the book's faint spots of hope shine all the brighter. It makes them stand out against the dark background of lamentation, moaning, and woe. And that, I'm convinced, is part of its plan. So, what are we supposed to think and feel so far? Well, there's not a tidy way to sum this up. It depends on the thoughts and the feelings that each reader started with. I've read this text scores of times, if not hundreds of times. Speaking only for myself, I'm struck every time by two things in particular. The first is that God is wholly other. He is nothing like us. I know many people who long to see God in this life, and that is certainly not my wish, reflecting on these chapters. If Ezekiel teaches us anything, it's that God is difficult to look upon, difficult to describe, difficult to comprehend. He appears as where he wishes, he does as he wishes, and he does not seek our permission or offer explanations. He's not comfortable. He is certainly not safe. He is wondrous and dreadful and confusing and vast, but he cannot be domesticated. The second is that our happiness is not necessarily paramount in God's plans for us. That sounds like a very Scottish application, doesn't it? My wife often tells our children that she's not terribly concerned with their happiness. <clears throat> that they are responsible and well-adjusted and wise and good, she does care about. That they're happy? Not so much. She'll be embarrassed that I say this, but it's a very godlike attitude. God comes on Ezekiel suddenly, Like a storm, as he sits beside a river, he draws Ezekiel into his concealing cloud. He exposes him to the fright of seeing his person and his terrible creatures and his fire and his lightning, of hearing the dreadful noises of the creatures, of feeling the world shake under him. Ezekiel's entirely unmanned by this. He falls on his face. He's plucked up and declared a prophet, whether he likes it or not. He's warned not to rebel. He's fed a scroll full of woe. The result of all of this we learn later is that Ezekiel is stunned, as he says, to the point that he is mute and unable to move for an entire week. We're not all like Ezekiel, thank goodness. But if our personal happiness is not God's first concern, there is comfort in this, whether life is good or bad, comfortable or painful, dull or exciting, none of that says anything about our usefulness to God or about His commitment to us. Whatever our own experiences, He can find us where we are and use us for His own good. Those are somewhat sober reflections. So I want to close with a little bit of Ezekiel's more hopeful words. Thus says the Lord God, I, even I, will seek my sheep. I will search them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when scattered, so I will seek my sheep. I'll rescue them from all the places they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples. I will gather them from the countries. I will bring them to their own land and feed them on the mountains of Israel. Amen.